Am I on loud and clear? All right. Chapter 6 has been described as a self-portrait painted in words. For Solomon, as I have already noted before, Solomon makes use of three memorable phrases to describe his conclusions for his search for meaning and purpose in this life. He says, under the sun occurs 35 times within this book. Vanity, 25 times. Grasping for the wind, 7 times. And all three occur in this section of scripture in chapter 6. He is writing from the perspective of a man who has pursued happiness and fulfilling apart from God. Yet at the same time, he clearly is someone that knew God, believed in God, and served God as a child yet wandered away from God, and I hope wandered back. Surely, he gives us some good godly advice here in chapter 6, starting at verse 1. Well, before we get into the word, let's, let's ask God's blessing on his word. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you for this uh, opportunity to open your word. Lord, uh, may we be uh, open vessels to receive all that you have for us. Lord, that you would just open our hearts to receive you. Lord, uh, Lord just uh, make, it, make your word clear to each heart. Lord, that you have something prepared for each one of us. Lord, you sure have blessed me uh, in studying for this. Lord, uh, that you sure spoke to my heart. Lord, I just uh, pray that I can uh, get over the jitters, Lord, and uh, the nervousness to, to speak clearly and, and uh, boldly, Lord, in your Holy Spirit. Lord, I just pray, be with us, Lord, and bless this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Chapter 6 goes, There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is common among men. A man of whom God has given riches and wealth and honor, so that he lacks nothing for himself, Of all he desires, yet God does not give him power to eat of it. But a foreigner consumes it. This is vanity, and it is an evil affliction. That word affliction also uh, can be used as disease. There is a cruel irony in life that lays heavy on man. It concerns a man whom God has blessed and given everything... His heart's desire. Every blessing under the sun. Riches, wealth, honor. But unfortunately, God does not give him the capacity to enjoy these blessings. I like how Solomon blamed God. But I'm sure all of us have seen people that they scrimp and save, hoard, put away, lay away, put aside, work hard, never enjoying the fruits of their labor. And when that day of merry leisure comes close, a tragedy happens, whether it's early death, illness, or bad investments, and all of slips away. I know my father worked hard, and the year of his uh, retirement got cancer and died. I work with a man right now that he's confessed to me that, that ever since he was a child, he's put away 10% of everything that, it, that he has earned into a savings account. In the 30-some years with the company, he's never taken his vacation. And he has no hobbies. And there's no joy in the guy's life. Uh, His wife goes on vacation without him. He stays behind and watches the animals. 
I said, well, do you enjoy golf? No. I used to golf 30, 30 years ago. How about skiing? Oh, I hate it. hate the snow. And, and I just think, well, when that day of leisure comes, he's not going to know what to do. Because he has, has not learned to enjoy life today. Man who works his heart his whole life, building up, laying aside, hoarding and putting away for that merry leisure. And when that day draws near, he leaves it to a stranger, not even a son or a relative. And you have to ask yourself, what was it all for? He worked his whole life, it seemed, for nothing. No retirement, no fun, no pleasure. His plans were for nothing. This certainly makes life look like an empty grasp at a bubble, doesn't it? He goes on in verse 3. If a man begets a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with goodness, or indeed he has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better than he. This is a weird verse. Even if a man has many children and many daughters, hundreds, and lives to be a ripe old age, you have to understand in that culture, that was a sign of God's immense blessing. See, it's, it's another scenario. He says, one that puts away and never gets to enjoy it. And I have to assume by early death. Now this guy gets to live to be a ripe old age. He has many children. And he has no enjoyment. If he is unhappy and bitter and his soul is unsatisfied with life, better off is the stillborn. We've all run into someone like this, bitter, unhappy, and who is better off? Verse 4 goes, sort of continues from here. For it comes in vanity and departs in darkness, and its name is covered with darkness. Though it has not seen the sun or known anything, this has more rest than that man. Even if he lives a thousand years twice, but has not seen goodness, no, not all good, do not all go to one place. Sort of continues from there. He, he's talking about the stillborn. It's a little shocking to me that Solomon thought this whole thing out. When I was reading this, I just kind of was just blown away that he thought about this stillborn child. See, the stillborn comes in vanity, leaves in, in anonymity, unnamed, unknown, and is covered in obscurity and was never born and never dies, yet has more peace than this bitter miser who has many children, yet nobody weeps at his funeral. And even if the old man lives to be a thousand twice years, if he has not seen happiness, what good is it? He and the stillborn both go to the same grave. Verse 7 goes, All the labor of a man is for his mouth, and yet the soul is not satisfied. A man's main reason for working is to feed his family and himself. But the odd thing is, we are never satisfied, are we? We always want more bacon. <laughs> easy, easy, Fritz. <laughs> the more we make, the more we want, the more we eat, the more we buy, and still we think we need more. Contentment is that carrot on a stick that always eludes us, doesn't it? 
We work to satisfy our desires, yet our desires are never really quenched. And this is what Solomon is talking about. Have you ever noticed how attractive a new car looks on the, on the lot? And you walk up to it and you say, oh, I can see my reflection <laughs> in the paint job. You get in and you think, oh, it fits. <laughs> you know, and... Uh, you walk around the car to the other window and you look at the price tag and you say, oh, I can't afford that. Then the salesman comes along. <laughs> and he goes, oh, this is you. This is you. You want the keys? No, I, I think you do. Pretty soon you're taking it for a, for a drive and you're thinking, oh, I can't afford this. But he's always willing to cut a little here. Nip a little there, a discount there. Before you know it, you're sitting in his office signing papers and driving it home. And you're thinking, you know, I could work a few more hours. I don't have to tell the wife immediately what it costs. <laughs> and you think, you know, uh, we, could, we, could, we could script and save here and we can cut off a little here. You know, cut out a dinner, dinner a week. But it doesn't take long for that new car to lose its allure, does it? Pretty soon that shiny paint that you've seen your reflection in doesn't shine like it did. And it doesn't take but a month before you got your first ding in, ding in the thing. And, and you're already looking for that new car. But you still got the payments of that car. This is what Solomon says. All the labor of a man is for his mouth, and yet the soul is not satisfied. Jesus said to the woman at the well, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. And she goes, Give me this water. I want to drink of that water. And he was talking about that living water, which is in him. I think that should be written over every earthly go that we have. Whether it is a house, a new car, a new job. We will not be satisfied and filled by any earthly pursuit. The greatest wealth is to be content with just a little and let God fill the rest. We're all like birds in my backyard. They spend all their time either looking for food, eating food, or escaping their enemies. I have cats. <laughs> These birds are not living, they're simply existing. Yet they sing about, that, about it, don't they? Verse 8 goes, for what more has the wise man than the fool? What does the poor man have who knows how to walk before the living? The answer is none. If all we do is live to satisfy our appetite, then the wise man has no advantage over the fool. And we live foolishly. We must have something greater than this which to live for and that is God or we will always be searching verse 9 goes better is the sight of the eye than the wandering of, of desire this also is vanity and grasping for the wind this is Solomon's verse of the simil similar phrase a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush and this, this proverb has been around for a long time First century Greek biographer Plutarch wrote, He is a fool who lets slip a bird in his hand for a bird in the bush. And all Solomon was saying, it is better to have and really enjoy it than to dream about much and never attain it. 
Again, this is vanity and grasping for the wind. And Solomon isn't saying it's wrong to dream. I believe we all should have a dream. And there's nothing wrong with ambitions and set goals for ourselves. But go for it to glorify God in it. And He will help you achieve it. If you don't enjoy what you have, how could you be happier with more? But the bottom line is, enjoy what you have. Verse 10 goes, Whatever one is, he has been named already, for it is known that he is man. And he cannot contend with him who is mightier than he. Since there are many things that increase vanity, how is man the better? Questions with no answers. Whatever you are, rich, poor, wise or foolish, old or young, you have already been named man. And the word man is Adam. And Adam means red clay. How can red clay dispute with Almighty God? We can't. Kind of puts everything in perspective. We're just earthen earthen vessel. And yet God uses his most precious treasure to place in these earthen vessels. Verse 12 goes, For who knows what is good for man in life? All the days of his vain life, which he passes like his shadow. Who can tell a man what will happen after him under the sun? For who knows what is good for a man in this life? No man can tell you what is right for you. Only God knows. And a wise man will listen to what God has to say. Yes, life is fleeting and elusive and like a soap bubble, empty, and like Solomon says, as a shadow. But he who does the will of God abides forever. That is from 1 John, and this is a promise that you and I can trust in. Does anybody know what's coming next? In his amazing story, 1984, George Orwell wrote, Who controls the past controls the future. Who controls the present controls the past. Man persistently seeks to discover what the future holds. And we'll do to go to any length to find that. We seek to hang on to words of anyone that claims prophetic vision. Presidents have turned to astrologers and numerologists. Businessmen have turned to decide business adventures from the turning of a tarot card. All in vain attempt to crack the code that unlocks tomorrow. What vanity, declared Solomon the preacher. Who can tell a man what will happen after him under the sun? There is no ghost of Christmas past, future, or present. Destiny lies in the hand of our God, and he's a sovereign God. And he loves you and me. He knows our future and he holds it in his hands. The British essayist Joseph Adam wrote this and I want to share it with you. The grand essentials to happiness in this life are something to do, someone to love, and something to hope for. I don't think Addison was a Christian or had Christianity in mind when he wrote this. But I believe, as believers, we have all three in Christ Jesus. Solomon is like a man who has fallen, hardened to despair. And he knows exactly where he went wrong. And knows what caused his fall. And he cries out to you and me, don't follow me. Don't do what I did. We do him 
an injustice when we marvel at his poetry only and nod our heads in agreement with his observations on life under the sun. We need to take heed to his warning and stop grasping for wind. I know he's been speaking to my heart in this study. Chapter 7 goes, A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of one's birth. First, a good name is better than precious ointment. A good name, of course, signifies a man's character. The thought is that most expensive perfume can never take the place of an honorable life living. And your life should not be summed up by your past. Because each one of us here has a past. It does not define us. You can be a person of good character today, each one of us. We are a new creation in Christ Jesus. We are born again. I am a better man than I used to be. And I am a better man since I met Jesus Christ. He has changed me. And he goes on to say, And the day of death than the day of one's birth. Now that kind of caught me. Because I had to really think about what he said there. And it sort of had me guessing. I believe as a man's inner character is better than his outer fragrance, so is the funeral and not his birthday that will reveal the true character of a man. And when I read that, I had to think about Brent. Because I'm sure his parents were really proud when he was born. But he was probably purple. And you could put a bow on his little hair and, and that, but you really couldn't tell what kind of man he was going to be. But when we packed this sanctuary, and people cried, and, and we celebrated his life, because he didn't die he went to go be with the Lord. And it was a celebration of a man's life that he lived to the fullest. And it wasn't just that he was a pastor and a good guitar player and, and a, a good friend. It was that he loved the Lord and he was a man of good character. And it's also made me think of... Jeannie, because she was low profile. She didn't serve in the church in, in, in any capacity, some, you know, uh, she didn't have a position. She had a little shop in, in Castleford and she did ladies' hair. But every day that she worked there doing hair, she was a testimony to Christ. And she touched people's life like. No one else. And uh, whether she was at the corner market buying a loaf of bread, she shared her faith. And she loved on people. And you could look in Jeannie's eyes and you could tell and feel the love from Jeannie. And it just broke our hearts to lose her. And we just kept on hoping that God would heal her. But she was so precious that God wanted her to himself. And uh, we didn't have room in this church to feel the friends and loved ones and people that Jeannie touched. Our overflow back in the back room was packed. And what a testimony to a lady that, that uh, if you knew her, she was just a simple friend and, and you always felt like she loved you the most that she was just your best friend but she was everybody's best friend and Joni would go to get her hair done and she would oh I spent the day with Jeannie and 
What a testimony. Verse 2 goes, Better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For that is the end of all men, and the living will take to its heart. We today don't like to think of death. But the place of the graveside reminds us of our mortality. It's easier to go elsewhere. And I had to think about what Solomon was trying to say. And he was saying, it's easier to go to picnic, go to a barbecue, and say, Hey, Joe, how's the family? How's the job going? Oh, fine. It's good. How about you? How's the grandkids? Oh, they're good. But there's no lasting fruit. There's no edifying It's small talk, and you have a good time. But when we go to a funeral, it reminds us to number our days. That this life is fleeting, and we're only here for a short while. And God blesses us, and and we need to enjoy, enjoy one another. That we may gain a heart of wisdom that we would take to heart what Solomon was saying. Number your days. Verse 3 goes, If a man begets... Wrong chapter. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by a sad continent the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of the fool is in the house of mirth. We look at sorrow and laughter. He is not saying that laughter is is bad. I think laughter is good. But that through times of sorrow, our heart is made better, for we grow through those times of grieving. And each one of us learn. I know that I've been, it's been said before, But our disappointments are often God's divine appointments in our life. And when I see brothers and sisters going through times of trials, I know that God is making us grow. I know during times of great blessing, it is easy to forget about God. But it seems like always we turn to him through times of trial. It is through times of grief and mourning that our hearts are turned to God the most. What Paul said in 2 Corinthians, he wrote, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss for us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Verse 5 goes, It is better to hear the rebuke of of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. For like the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of a fool. This is also vanity. In the book of Proverbs, Solomon wrote, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. It may be hard to take at times, but constructive criticism instructs, corrects, and warns. And empty flattery is like cotton candy. It tastes good. It may put a smile on our face, but it gives us no nutritional value. Six goes, and a crackling thorn under a pot makes for an impressive display of intense heat. It never lasts long enough to produce a meal. When we are rebuked by a wise friend, we feel like we're being picked on. 
But in the end, it produces character in each one of us that sustains us. I like it when Father King David said in Psalm 141, Let the righteous strike me, it shall be a kindness. And let him rebuke me, it shall be as an excellent oil. Let my head not refuse it, for still my prayer is against the deeds of the wicked. You know, I don't always like rebuke or correction. But I always seem to reflect and look and, and grow from it. And I always know when it's coming from a friend, it's from his heart. Now verse 7 and 8 goes, Surely oppression destroys a wise man's reason, and a bribe debases the heart. The end of the thing is better than its beginning. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. The long haul is better than a shortcut. We need to watch out for easy routes in our life. They often become expensive detours and difficult and painful. Because even a wise man becomes a fool if he cheats, lies, and takes a shortcut. And, you know, a lot of the decisions we make are not wise by the world's standards. To do the right thing doesn't always feel wise or profitable. We are often in life tempted to compromise our values, whether it is cheating, lying, stealing, or accepting a bribe just to get ahead and succeed. But there is a sense of achievement and satisfaction when we do things right to glorify God. We bless God and He builds godly character in us when we do things right. I don't want to go to a surgeon and find out they took a crash course. I like to know that he's been doing this a long time, and he, uh, he went through some long years of schooling before he works on my arm. The end of the thing is better than the beginning when we do things right, and God smiles upon us. Verse 9 goes, Do not hasten in your spirit to be angry, for anger rests on the bosom of fools. Solomon warns against flying off the handle. And I have to be honest with you, this used to be a problem for me. But God has been teaching me. Such lack of self-control reveals a decided weakness in our character. Solomon, someone who has said, that you can judge the size of a man by the size of what it takes to make him lose his temper. We expose ourselves as fools when we lose control of our anger. Now, when Jesus went into the temple and he turned over the tables, that was righteous anger. And Jesus didn't look back and think, Oh, man, i got to go back and say I'm sorry to these guys. No, he went back and did it again. Because they were back to their old tricks. You know, we need to think and pray and respond. But not in anger. Whether your parents, you don't want to look back and think, Oh, I wish I would. You know, they needed to be corrected, but I wish I wouldn't have been so angry. And verse 10 goes, Do not say, Why were the former days better than these? For you do not require wisely concerning this. You know, I had to think about this because we all run in, fall into this trap of saying, You know, weren't the good old days better than this? And the TV shows were just more edifying and, Oh, long for 
Leave it to Beaver. Bonanza, those good old days when shows were... <laughs> now I find myself clicking going, oh, oh not that, oh, oh, not that. Because nothing glorifies. But we run into a trap when we do that. When we glorify the good old days. And we harp on the good old days and wish they would return. And we miss the opportunities of the glory days that we live in right now. We live in a world that makes of make-believe when we live in the good old days. We need to live triumphantly today for Christ. Better to light a candle than to curse the darkness. I found this and wanted to share it with you. While you are dreaming of the future and regretting the past, the present, which is all you have, slips from you and is gone. Verse 11 and 12 goes, Wisdom is good with an inheritance and profit to those who see the sun. For wisdom is a defense as money is a defense. But the excellence of knowledge is that wisdom gives life to those who have it. Wisdom is better than inheritance because money can lose its value. Or it can be stolen. But true wisdom from God Cannot, you cannot lose it, and it keeps its value, and you can share it with others. I had a hard time with this one because I've had, I wasn't born with a lot of wisdom. And I didn't get an inheritance. We need to remember Christ is the wisdom of God. And that those who find him find life. Amen? Verse 13 goes, Consider the work of God, for who can make straight what he has made crooked? We pray not that we can persuade God to see our way, and that God would understand our will. We pray that God would involve us in what he is doing, and that we would understand God's will for our life. And a lot of times we misunderstand and we think, if God could only, if God would only understand, if God would only see my way. I like what we say in Celebrate Recovery. Because we say a little prayer. We say, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. And to understand that prayer is to know that you know, give me serenity that I can't change everything and, and I'm not meant to change everything. And God's not going to make everything rosy for me. That God would give me courage to change the things that I can change. And that God would give me wisdom to understand the difference between the two. I think it is a wise prayer. Verse 14 goes, In the day of prosperity, be joyful. But in the day of adversity, consider. Surely God has appointed one as well as the other, so that the man can find out nothing that will come after him. When things go well, enjoy it. Embrace the day. We, we sometimes think that we feel guilty or we think we're undeserving when God blesses us and he pours out his blessings upon our life. Embrace it. Enjoy it. God wants that from you and me. Enjoy it. And when adversity comes, learn to be content and grow through it. Grow through the situation. Paul said, I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. Job reminded was reminded of this truth when, he, when she told him, curse God and die. And he said, what? Shall we receive good at the hand of God and shall not receive trouble? Earlier Job said, the Lord gives and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I have seen that God gives us enough blessing to keep us happy. 
And he gives us burdens to keep us humble. And there's a good balance in both. And that Paul had understood and learned to rejoice in his trials. Verse 15, he goes, And I have seen everything in my days of vanity, and there is such man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is wicked man who prolongs life in his wickedness. We have an expression, now I've seen everything. (laughs) And this is sort of what Solomon was saying. Now I've seen everything. Because Solomon... In the course of Solomon's empty life, he had seen every kind of contradiction. He saw just people die young and wicked ones live long. And I know I've been asked, why do good people die young and wicked people seem to prosper? And the answer is, I don't know. But I know God knows. And God is just. And he will make all things right. And we don't have to understand everything that God does. And I don't have to have all the answers. Verse 16 goes, Do not be overly righteous, nor be overly wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Do not be overly wicked, nor be foolish. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you grasp this, and also that you remove your hand from the other. And he who fears God will escape them all. Don't misunderstand these verses. I don't think we can be overly righteous. Solomon wasn't saying, play it safe. In the Hebrew text, the verse in verse 16 carries the idea, don't claim to be righteous. And don't claim to be wise. He was warning them against self-righteousness and the pride that comes when we think we have arrived in Christ. I'm here. (laughs) There's a real... a scary place to be when we get to that place when we think we're there the preacher said to grasp this fact we need to take hold of the of true righteousness and we should not with withdraw from true wisdom and both are found in Christ and the way to do it is to walk in the fear of God Christ is to the believers our wisdom and our righteousness. We are clothed in him and his righteousness. And I cannot boast in anything of myself. Verse 19 goes, Wisdom strength the wise more than ten rulers. Wisdom grounded in the fear of God is mighty for you and me. We should all pray for wisdom daily, and God will give it. James said, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. I want to end with this. What are some of the problems that we face in this life and we overcome? Number one on the list is sin. We were born into a sinful nature. We are guilty of both sins of omission and sins of commission. But as we walk in the fear of God and follow his wisdom, we are able to detect and defeat the wicked one who is always there to tempt us. Wisdom will guide us and guard us in our daily walk. Jesus said, I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. Are we fruit bearers? 
in Christ. Because the truth is, he says, if you abide in me and I in you, you will bear fruit. And a fruit tree and a fruit branch doesn't have to try and bear fruit. It just comes from from abiding in the tree. He goes on to say, for without me, you can do nothing. We live in a fallen world, gang. And our neighbors, our friends, and our family need a savior. They are perishing in their sins. And you and I have a treasure in us. They need hope. They need this treasure that you and I hold so dearly, we hoard and keep to ourselves that you and I would let it out and give it away. They need eternal life, and we are commanded to bear fruit. How do we do this? We abide in Christ. And that's an easy phrase to say. But we need to die to ourselves. We need to take up our crosses and follow Christ. And it's easier said than done. But we need to live for Him. Jesus was asked, Who will very few be saved? And Jesus didn't deny this claim. He said, They will come to me in that day, and I will say, I never knew you. He said, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not do great works in your name? And he said, Apart from me. I never knew you. Do you know Christ? Do you abide in him? Because we give so little. You won't have to try and bear fruit if you abide in him. And he goes on to say, abide in my word. This needs to become a part of our life. We need to eat it. We need to study it. Yet we remain babes in Christ. We need to share this light that Christ with others. We have this treasure, the good news of the gospel. We can't take it with us. We have to give it away. A little boy sat on the floor of the church nursery with a red ball in each arm and three Nerf balls clenched on the floor between his pudgy little knees. He was trying to protect all five balls from the other children in the nursery. The problem was he could not hold all five balls at once. And the ball nearest to his feet was particularly vulnerable of being stolen. So whenever another child showed an interest in playing with one of the balls, the little boy snarled and he made clear that these toys were not to be shared. I suppose I should have stepped in and made the little boy give up one or two of the balls, but I was too wrapped up in the drama. For about five minutes, this little guy growled, postured, and kept the other children away from the balls. Like a hyena hunched over the last scraps of his carcass, this snarling little canine was not in the mood for sharing. The other kids circled like vultures around the kill looking for a way to jump in and steal a ball without being attacked and bitten. I honestly did not know whether to laugh or cry as I watched. Then it struck me. This little boy was not having any fun. There was no cheer within ten yards of this kid. Not only was he unhappy, but all the other kids were sad as well. His selfishness created a black hole that sucked all the joy out of the nursery. When church was over and his parents came to pick him up, 
He left all five balls behind. I guess the old saying is true. You can't take it with you. I believe with all my heart this is the truth that that Solomon was trying to relay to you and I. If you can't take it with you, who do you leave it to? And what is it all for? And our life is meant to glorify God. And all that we do, we were created by Him and for Him. And on all things, what does God want from you and me? I know this was a question that really ate at Solomon. What's it all for? What does God want from me? In Micah 6, 8, God told Micah this. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before your God. Do right. Show and receive mercy. Stay humble in your walk with God. That is all he wants from you and I. Let's stand and pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you for this time with you. Lord, uh, that you'd be blessed in us. Lord, I'm just so pleased that so many showed up to be with you. Lord, I just uh, pray that you'd bless our hearts. Lord, that you'd bless our walk with you. That you would always find us humbly before you. Lord, that you'd always find us walking in obedience to your word. Lord, give us a hunger in our hearts, Lord, for more of you and more of your word. That we would cling like branches to a tree, Lord. That when you come, you'd find us abiding in you. And that you would find us bearing much fruit. Lord, help us to be fruit bearers. Lord, uh, that, uh, that we would be a witness for you. And every once in a while, you'd, we'd have opportunity to even share a word. That our lives would reflect that we have been with you. Lord, we just thank you for this time in your word. And uh, Lord, we just, uh, as we leave this place, Lord, that you would send us into the battlefield, into the harvest. Lord, uh, teach us what it means, Lord, to abide completely. Teach us what it means to take up our cross and follow you. As Peter was told, don't worry about John. You, Peter, follow me. Lord, we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.